When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. SEN Test Cricket for Host Plus, an industry super fun for all Australians. We've just had the next shower sweep across the SCG. This would be the tea break for Bundaberg Ginger Beer, the great Australian brew. Now, earlier in the day, to great acclaim, Damien Fleming interviewed the Prime Minister. So, time to go again, Flem. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, really, the start of an ongoing series yeah. where I um, talk to... Celebrities, prime ministers, heads of state, um, but to start, you know, you need to start with a bang, and we've we've got someone special here. We do, we do. This is going to trend. This one, he is he's unashamedly, and this was before we met him. He is one of our favourites. I loved him. In, in what sort of category would he be? Is you had the right comparison? Well, I'm comparing him to. We're the same sort of era. Like Gus Logie from yep. the West Indies. Love Gus Logie. Uh, and, and, mate, I think, I, obviously, I played against Jonty, so I remember his batting. But but I wouldn't remember a Gus Logie innings. But we know how many runouts, how many catches he took. And the Australian public just loved him, didn't they, Gus yep. Logie? And they loved this man here. So the first time we floated this in, in at the Gabba, we got a flurry of text messages from those who had named a child Jonty. Actually, you know what I'd love? I'd love him actually not to say a word and you and me <laughs> just, talk about him. just talk about the great man, get a few little texts in here and just, just watch his body no, language. John, hello, the life of he John, looks about yeah, six. Johnny, oh, no, you're there. No. I didn't see you. I cannot sit still that long. Um, like he's grown to six foot yeah. six, this man. <laughs> have you been on the Tim Tam Slams? I have, I have. I've just been introduced to apparently just, you know, something that I... People can't believe I've been coming to Australia since 1992. I've not yet had a Tim Tam Slam, so been there, done that. 297 games for South Africa. It's amazing. That's me. That wasn't really. 245 I mean, one-day international. I had an 11-year career. Could have slammed in a few more, <laughs> maybe. We, we didn't play a lot of cricket back in those days. But, yeah, I mean, it just put things in perspective, I was the first of a generation where for... 30 years prior to that, nobody had played cricket for South Africa. So some of the greats of the game that we are aware of. And then also many of the non-white cricketers who never even got that opportunity yep. prior to the, the sort of apartheid isolation. So, yes, because you, you'll hear cricket players talk about it's a privilege to play for your country. And sometimes it's, it's kind of just, you know, that they're saying it because they need to say it or it's good for marketing or social media. But for, from my perspective, you know, it, it wasn't even a dream come true because it wasn't a dream. There was no country to play for when I was growing up playing cricket in South Africa. So, so what, what was the attraction to cricket then? Can you recall? Uh, kept you very busy. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of energy. My folks just sent me outside. And, and I just... Because interestingly, I, I mean, I, I used to get very nervous. So I, I, and at, at under 13 level, I was batting at number six. I didn't bowl. So it tells you a bit about my, you know, some of my expertise. I was definitely, even then, in, in the field. And uh, a good friend of mine used to open the bowling and open the batting at under 13A. And he was slightly on the stockier side. And he complained to the, to the coach, just saying, so I can't 
So, South Africans. So, I, I can't open the batting and the bowling. And he was kind of hoping that the coach would take away the new ball because he rated himself as a batter. And he said, okay, that's fine. But he was, because he was quite big at, at under 13 level, the coach wanted him to scare the opposition. So, he said, no, you go bat number six, you can recover and rest, and we'll send John T up the order. So, I, I started my career as an opening batter and um, played South African schools with Hansi Kronier, uh, the late Hansi Kronier, and opened the batting with him against Alan Donald. Um, because we, when you were selected for the South African schools, wherever the tournament was held, you would play against the state team. And Alan Donald was a young, fiery, fast bowler who we had to face. And Hansi Cronier scored 100 on that day. I got knocked on the elbow and came back to bat number 10. So I retired hurt for quick x-ray scan. And Alan Donald smashed me quite hard. But cricket was always just something... I mean, we have such distinct... You know, in, in the school year, you had to play all the other sports. You couldn't just specialize in one. And from a summer point of view, cricket and tennis, and, and I loved both of them. But it was never a case of, this is my career, because as I said, there was no future in, in cricket at all. So that dream happened really quickly, didn't it? Yeah. And it's interesting that South Africa was strong straight away in, in 50-over cricket, in test match cricket. Um but I remember talking to you off air, you know, what the expectation, how did you find the MCG and all that? And, and you were talking about, well, because there was never any really dream, you just took it all in your stride. The MCG, SCG, it was just part of the process. Um, was, it, was there a feeling as a group early on that, that you were going to be able to match at an international level or did you grow confidence game by game? I think what was interesting, because our opening match was against Australia here at the SCG and they had the former Wallaby coach, Alan Jones who had just been released from his, his contract with the Wallabies in 1992. And Kepler Vessels got him to come and talk to us. And, and a lot of the focus, because that, that's the amazing thing, you know, team environment, we all have different roles to play. And he spoke to, the, to us for about an hour. And everybody that I spoke to afterwards had got something different out of his, you know, his, his kind of chat with us. And a lot of the brief that Kepler had spoken to him was about how do you get the players not to f you know, focus on that big crowd, you know, because in South Africa, domestic state cricket, we were only playing in front of five or 6,000 people, and let alone the broadcast. So the one thing that, that he did say to, that resonated with me in a big way was that he said, if because cricket, you're going to get nervous if you focus on your performance, because especially if you're a batter, you've got one opportunity. So you have to think literally every 60 seconds of the game, what can I do for the team in the next minute? And that was, that was in my focus. I mean, I was given, I had all this energy, and my role, we didn't have a spin bowl in the team. Omar Henry was here. He only played, I think, one game or two games in the whole tournament. And to get through the overrate, you had to hustle the players in between. So I would run. My job was to hustle the players, but because I was 22 and these guys were big men, I was not going to tell them to hurry up. You know, <laughs> you, you tell Alan Donald, can you imagine? Come on, Alan, you're too slow. Big you know, well, I've, got to, I've got to tell Big Mac that you know, you, you, you're keeping us behind. Or Alan, you're too slow. I've got to face him in the nets the next day. And he will whistle one past my nose and go, oh, really, John T. How slow was that? <laughs> you know? So all I did was go grab his cap from, from the bowler. Um, who was at usually in those days third man fine leg, and run back to the umpire, give the umpire the cap. Um, then also Dave Richardson was a wicketkeeper, and the marker for no one painted lines had a little round disc. So swinger Dave Richardson would get to his catching position, you know, behind the stumps or, or halfway back or 20 meters back, and invariably in his region there was the disc marking the run up. So he would then kick it away. Because it was circular, it would end up, you know, rolling to square leg or something. So I'd have to go find that and yeah. know which which bowler had 
marked his particular sort of run up and, and then bring that and then get to backward point in time. So that was my job. I had the energy and it, it actually allowed me. So I didn't have that. I mean, going out to bat slightly different because you do have a job to do. But just being given that role to get the team through, not being told how to do it. And I just worked out the easiest for me, use the energy and uh, allow the team. So I wasn't that nervous in the field. We actually were able to embrace it and just enjoy the atmosphere. I mean, we, Port Elizabeth, I love playing in Port Elizabeth because they had a band in South Africa. They actually had a live band. Yep. Um, unofficially, they just pitched up and played. So, you know, that, that sort of vibe I've always fed off as somebody with real energy. So just before we delve through those games, just, just take me back one step. Who were your cricketing heroes growing up? Well, they they would, would they wouldn't necessarily have been South African. No, figures, they weren't. Would I they? mean, we didn't have international sport, and you would get the occasional cricketing magazine that would come through the sports shop, um, like a Wisden cricket magazine, and from the UK, and generally was Australians. You know, so Alan Border, uh, Ian Healy, David Boone, and all those guys who I was now playing against. Hmm. And hockey. Where, where does the hockey fit in? And is it right that you might have pursued hockey towards the Olympics? Yeah, hockey, hockey fitted in way stronger because it was always a team game. You know, it was a bit like my fielding. So I had all this energy. Um, I had certain skills that you, having speed and, and sort of pace across the ground uh, and the ability to find the back of the net. I was a striker. And also we played a lot of hockey on grass. It was kind of just as AstroTurf was starting in South Africa. There was never any funds for any, any hockey tournaments and things. So the Durban, where I was based, we put down the first AstroTurf. So all the tournaments. But I enjoyed the, the bumpiness of the outfield because I would be able to sort of snaffle a, a, a shot, that, the stick that ball that bounced off the stick, that bounced loose, and I could pounce on that. So hockey was certainly a game that I felt I had more chance of if South Africa came back one day, there was more chance that I would play hockey for South Africa than cricket. So it was never had to be a choice, though, Gerard, because you, six months of hockey, six months of cricket, and you played one, one winter sport and one summer sport. So studying at university, playing state hockey, state cricket, and it was never a choice of, I mean, cricket selected me because the fact that we came here in 1992 before democracy, and then 1994 we started playing other international sports, but by then... We're already touring Sri Lanka in September. We toured England in June, May, June, July. We actually went for nearly four months, our first trip to England, because we played only three test matches, but I think we played every single county side. So you, you think of the preparation now that the Australian team is about to go to India. They're not even getting a warm-up game, are they? They've requested a, a practice session in the middle. You know, we played every single county in the UK. We were there for three and a half months. We played three ODIs yeah. and three tests. It just felt like you're playing cricket every single day. So amazing. N never the choice of... So cricket kind of chose me yep. rather than the other way around. So it was meant to be, I think. And, Jonty, what about growing up? You know, we Rebel Tours started to go there. I think first yep. was England and West Indies, Sri Lanka, yep. and then Australia did two seasons of Rebel Tours there. Did, did that have any impact? Do you remember about when you started to get international teams there? Yeah, 100%. In fact, the first game that I went to watch internationally was the West Indies, the Rebel Tour. Because we had, I lived in a very small town outside of a very tiny town, where, or Peter Maritzburg, where I grew up, and I lived in a small village called Hilton. It, it had a, a building society, no banks. So it had one little sort of superette, um, no supermarkets in those days. And the, the the manager of the building society, he was a cricket nut. He absolutely loved cricket. And he obviously had, I'd 
scored a few runs in the, in the local newspaper who had written about me as a junior cricket player. And, and I had my little building society saving book, which is like 10 <laughs> rand every month. Team Tam. No, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> my dad would have taken it. He had a real sweet tooth. He started the, the rock, my father. But, but the, the, the building society manager, he took me to the game in Durban. because And those were the days... Jimmy Cook, they were facing um, Sylvester Clark, but we had a cap on. I mean, yeah, Frank crazy. So, so I went to go watch these guys. The first time I'd, I'd, I'd really watched live cricket. And, um, and then when Australia came out and, and that lost to 1987, there was a year that we played South African schools, um, Hansi Kroenje and myself, our final year at school. And there was a great finish. Clive Rice, I think, might have got a hat-trick in Port Elizabeth. You know, so there was Kepler was playing, Rod McCurdy. You know, I ended up playing against Pup McCurdy. He had a, he had a few words to say. <laughs> Very much. Um, and when he had breath, he, he certainly used that bark. It was less puffing and, <laughs> and, and more, way more verbal. But, you know, so those rebel tours... Mike Gatting came, and halfway through the tour, they actually cancelled it. Dr. Bacher, who had organized it, there was a massive protest in Peter Marisburg. And amazingly, because I was a local boy, I was going to be the 12th man of the South African side. Um, well, they had a, a warm-up game, so it wasn't the, the official. Like a Mark Rushmere was leading like a South African A-team, a warm-up game for, for the Mike Gatting. And they cancelled the tour in Peter Marisburg, my home ground. And I was wow. down to be, to be 12th man. So, yes, we had that sort of quasi international international experience but they were so few and far between that you, you never really related to them we, we knew that they were rebel tours and and not the real deal so how clear is your memory or your understanding growing up of why south africa was excluded from international sport very dim i mean the, the one thing and i think we've seen it with what's happening in the ukraine war i mean propaganda is is, is a great tool just to tell people what you want them to hear. And, and we really were segregated. Uh, there was no social media. There was nothing but the government-owned and government-run news agencies, you know, whether it was radio, television, or, I mean, we only got a television when I was about eight or nine years old. We didn't have a television, the television before that. So you, you, you never saw people. The thing about apartheid is seg segregation racially. And, and black African people lived in a totally different area. I mean, you never drove past... Um, where they were staying, where they lived, you never saw much of that. So you literally just grew up totally uh, devoid of any understanding of what they were going through. What about back to that first tour to Australia, 93, 94? Um, can you talk about the dynamics between Kepler Vessels and how important he was as an already made test player? Um, and also, also your mate. Hunzi Cronje, you know, I played a couple of games against South Africa and it appeared to us that Hunzi was always going to captain the country. Um, what about the, their strengths, but also their relationship as well? Because it, it was really, fa I mean, they actually attended the same school, Grey Bloom in Grey College in, in Bloemfontein. So, and, and a very Afrikaans, very strong in the rugby and, and not in, in that era, that generation, not a very big cricket culture. So the state team was literally the school's first team. So the Nicky, Nicky Boyers, you know, all these guys that, that came through the first team at school, they represented the state. Because outside that one particular school, they had an amazing Johan Fulstein, headmaster, recently retired. But he was the sports coach, the, the cricket team and, and the rugby team. And, and he grew cricket. In, and, and Hansi's dad was at the university. For, so, you know, it was kind of a, very much a family business, cricket, in the whole of Bloemfontein. <laughs> and Kepler and Hansi, as, as, a, as a captain, Hansi, when he first started, obviously wasn't vice-captain. Dave Richardson was. 
But we didn't have any other coaching staff. So Mike Proctor was my first coach for South Africa. And, and Kepler literally ran the show. So it was, it was quite the transition for me was quite easy because they have very different styles of leadership. And Kepler's was old school, very traditional. So tell you what to do and not only tell you what to do, but also how you must do it. You know, whereas that, and that's like having your head, your headmaster as, as the coach. So I fitted in, you know, my dad had told me, you wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth and you brush it six times on top and six <laughs> times. And so it was, everything was laid out quite happily. So I didn't have to think for myself and it, it actually made my transition into the South African team a lot easier. I didn't have to think for myself. And, and just how Kepler and Hansi, they were both fitness freaks. I mean, Hansi, Ran is the only guy that ever beat me in the bleep test. You know, I'm still unhappy about and that. And what were the numbers for you two? because uh, we've heard of it no. was it, was, it, it went through the Australian team. <laughs> I think Booney had a heart attack. <laughs> but around, no. what was around the mark? I can't. Remember. I really can't. I mean, I know the testing has changed and and, and the figures. It and, was and phenomenal. So it, it Hansi was, and in fact. He had also worked out a way to turn. He, he took a slightly wider, yeah, there was a skill. yeah he, he, he slightly wider turn. And in fact, Paddy Upton was the first time we had had a, a fitness sort of trainer in, in the team was about the 90, 97 stage, and he just said, "Can't see, okay, now we know you're running and running and running, but the, the, the purpose of this is not just to see how many times you can do it, but it's, it's also to you know check your your quad strength and and your yes. that, that sort of agility. So what you're doing is showing us you can just keep running all day, and he literally could. So he always he always had one or two more runs, one or two more laps than me. Got you but covered. He, he did. So but he and Kepler would train in the gym. None of us would train in the gym. I mean, the first time I went to a gym was in Sri Lanka in 1993. Um, we stayed at the Taj Samudra, which has become really well revamped. It's amazing. Whenever as a family we go on holiday to Sri Lanka, we always land in Colombo and go straight to the Taj. But there was actually Samoan guys playing rugby because believe it or not, rugby in Sri Lanka is, is a, and hockey obviously, but rugby is a pretty popular sport. And the one little gym in the hotel was, you know, the, 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 the gym equipment was slightly decrepit and I think the, the Samoan rugby players had hurt it because my first ever lat pull down with a bar, I pulled the bar not because I have any strength or it, the, the cable snapped. Oh. And I literally pulled the bar straight on my head. I took it as a sign and as a message and I left the gym <laughs> and never again. I'll run all day, Kefla. Oh, I'm not going to go back in the gym. But he and Hansi were you know, doing boxing exercises. And then they would pair up as well in the net. So Kepler as an opening batter, whether you're playing 50 over cricket or test cricket, we had the same opening batters. And his role was still to see off the new ball, build, kind of lay us a platform or a foundation, usually with Andrew Hudson or, Hudson, or maybe, yeah. you know, Gary Kirsten later on. So Kepler would just practice the leave in, in the nets, not get out. That was his whole focus. Survive a net, not play a shot. And he had a good net. But afterwards, man, him and Hansi would throw cover drives, pulls, cuts, you know, for half an hour. Okay, Hansi, your turn. So Kepler and Hansi had a really good relationship. Hansi took over here at the SCG. That famous test where Farney got six and four, four and six, ten in the game. And uh, Kepler had broken his hand, similar to Graham Smith. But the amazing thing about Kepler is that he went, he was batting number three. He went up the order. He said, let me open the batting because Shane Warne's going to come on the first five overs with, on day five. And there's no chance that, or day four, no chance I'm going to play him on. Let me use the pace. So here's a guy with a broken finger. He wow. goes up the order, takes it on. And he wasn't on the field of play in the last innings. So when South Africa defended 117, Hansi, I mean, this is now 94, so he's, and 20, not old he's 24 years old. Yeah. You know, he's not even turned 25, he's 24 and a bit. And he captained, he led the team. And we had experienced players in, so sure, they helped out. But he had to make all those 
those choices and decisions. So they had a very good relationship. Play has formally been abandoned on day three. So Jane McGrade will see not a ball bowled in this test match. That call has finally been made and uh, the remnants of the 20,000 are about to be informed of that. So a tremendous pity when play starts tomorrow before for 475. Do you recall, Jonty, what the international reaction was and the sense of representation was as your part of the re-emergence of South Africa on a sporting front? Well, it was interesting because there were, there were two distinct sort of fields of or, or, or thoughts because, one, we were on the international scene after 27 years of sporting isolation. We played good cricket and we had an amazing response from everybody around. But there was situations in New Zealand when we were out as a team for dinner and we had people saying, what are you racists still doing in international cricket? You know, you shouldn't be here. So there was you know, two distinct schools of thought. Still, we were not a democracy and, and, and rightly so. And, you know, we were invited back with the, you know, there was, I've spoken about it earlier, there was a referendum that took place during that World Cup and the referendum was, yes, we continue discussion and unban the ANC, release Nelson Mandela, and we drop apartheid. That was the referendum. Or no, we kind of circle the wagons and we just we hold on to what the power we have for as little time we as white minority South African government has. And fortunately for us, because we were told, had the referendum been no, we're not changing apartheid, we would have been... You know, taken out of the tournament. Yeah. So we were still reminded. In you know, in, I remember distinctly at, at a dinner, the whole team was out, and and New Zealanders behind us, people in in the restaurant, just saying, "Hey, South Africa," because South Africa had come on a few Rebel Rugby tours, and they'd they'd flower bomb them with light aircraft. You know, bags of flour. Protesters had run onto the ground and sprinkled spikes and and nails and things to prevent the rugby game going on. And um, you know, so. So we had that the sort of the, the two very uh, we were made very aware of you know of, of the scenario, but but most of it was just absolute love for the South African team, with some real characters who, who who put up a pretty good show, and with nobody expecting much from us, I think. And so it opens up. And what about you know in the Australian team? We we talk about the baggy green, you know we have underneath the Southern Cross off stand, you know, and you you made uh, aware of that when you debut. Okay, and if you haven't followed it through, um, yeah, you're underage. What about when did you feel like you, you'd started to gel and make your own culture as a team? Well, th- that's a really interesting question, and we often, as South Africans, kind of look at the the Australians, not only at their performance, but why and how. You know, you, Australia, we, we were in, renowned under sort of Hansi's leadership, winning games in tight situations with a number one ranked team without winning a World Cup sort of between 96 or 7 and, and 99, number one ranked team over a three or four year period. So, so obviously Hansi brought us together as, as a team. But, you know, my first cap was a blue, was a blue one. We, we were told we were never going to be the Springboks because it was now the United Cricket Board of South Africa. And the, reason, the very reason why we were actually representing the country was that we were the only sporting code that had unified and Dr. Ba- Dr. Ali Bacha. Um, and, you know, so, so we, we had already a, a cricket board that was looking... Ahead for, to democracy, you know, through this apartheid 
separation and, and things like that. So, so we never had the Springbok. I mean, the rugby's are still known. Rugby players for South Africa have always been known as the Springboks. Yeah. And for a lot of people, non-white South Africans, that the Springbok was an, you know, a symbol of apartheid oppression. So from the outset, Dr. Bakker had just, and there wasn't a protea then. It was literally a cricket ball. That said, the United Cricket Board of South Africa around it, and, and you played. That was the cap that you played with. So we, I think we only became the Proteas in about 1995. So it was interesting because it was definitely the leader within the team. I mean, Kepler, hard, disciplined. The guys trained, suffered. When you suffer together, you know, you kind of pull together in tight situations. Hansi, a very different kind of leader who got the best out of each player by understanding what they needed from him as somebody who had to make decisions and calls and this is the time that you know Johnson needs a kick in the backside, or he needs a you know an arm around the shoulder and just encouragement. So different styles of leadership, but it was less about playing for, you know, the, this is the badge or the emblem because the badge or, en- or emblem that we had grown up with, we'd, we'd kind of put it aside and said, okay, we understand for some for the majority of South Africans, this is actually a symbol of oppression. So we never identified with anything else. That we went, okay, so this is what we're playing for. We were kind of just playing. This is the team and playing for the country, but nothing that you could then go and sort of put it on the ground and say, we stand around this. Yeah. Makes sense? It does. Rather than us picking series or World Cups or games, do you have a favourite favourite team that you're a part of? Do you have a, a tournament or a series that you most cherish being involved in? Yeah, I think I have a couple. I mean, we firstly, obviously, the World Cup here launched my career thanks to Jim Fenwick, the photographer you know, in Brisbane, and Inzimam's running between the wickets, and <laughs> Steve Bucknell. He, I mean, if Steve Bucknell said not out, I would have looked really stupid. And yeah. he, he was well within his rights. Inzi was just out. I mean, literally, he was two inches out of his crease. And without the, you know, the referral to the third umpire, yeah. Steve Bucknell could have gone, sorry, son, you should have thrown the ball. That's and your job. Yeah, and Inzi was quick. It, and he always, <laughs> always <and> dived. Great <laughs> technique. <laughs> exactly. So how I got there first, I do not know. <laughs> To this day. So that was obviously for me just an, an incredible experience. I mean, my first game on debut was, as I said, just something that I never ever thought would take place. The fact that we beat Australia was kind of by the by. But 1993, I, I think after that World Cup, especially in India, suddenly people started talking about me. I mean, before in South Africa, people didn't know why I was selected for the World Cup because they'd, they'd left out Clive Rice, they'd left out Jimmy Cook. So all these senior guys who had actually gone to India. In September of 1991, we played three one-day internationals where Clive Rice had captained and you know, all the senior guys. And, and Kepler then took over, realizing that without the boundary ropes here, the fields, the cricket grounds here, were all multi-purpose stadiums. And the outfields were massive. You know, we didn't have big bats there. No one was hitting over the top, no power plays. You needed to run well between the wickets. So this, this launched me, for sure. And I was designed for this kind of cricket yeah. under Kepler Vessels. You know, score 200 and defend like crazy. Yeah. You know, tighten the field, give nothing away. And then in 1993, we toured India. And I think because I'd run out... Um, Inzimam and Pakistan, India, 92 were probably not the best of neighbors. And I know there's been real issues ever since. But because I ran out Inzi, I, I almost became like a son of India already, just <laughs> bestowed upon me. But we played against the West Indies and I took f- in a Hero Cup match in Vankedi, not Vankedi, same before Brabourne Stadium at the CCI, Cricket Club of India, and managed to get five catches in a day. And it was a rain-shortened game because it was so it had rained in the morning. 
It was the hottest. So when you, Mumbai, when you when you wake up and leave the hotel, you just start dripping. And three of the catches, two of the catches were sort of diving, one-handed catches. The ball just stuck on a hot, sticky day, um, and so hot that Daryl Cullen and I had got because Shane Warne wasn't bowling at the time. Yeah. <laughs> he and I put on a decent partnership. I was on forty, and he was on forty, and we were literally falling because we, we ran pretty hard. And I got out, and Daryl, as I swore past, he said, "You." Bu- bastard because he had to carry on batting he eventually just dropped his bat on about 17 just walked off the ground it was that kind of yeah, hot Desi Haynes came in at number 11 because he couldn't open the batting he just couldn't get himself so that that series having 30,000 Indian spectators chanting John T John T John T as I went from catch to catch to catch and took out half the team was for me the one of the most memorable things that I've ever been because you expect that sort of crowd reaction and response um Somebody has invaded the field. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's lovely. Entertainment. It's been a long day, I understand. I do understand. In fact, at university students, we used to do a, a couple of game, night games that we had in Peter Maritzburg. We would try and... A few of my mates would... Far less clothing than that fellow there. He's very modest with, <laughs> with his... a bit more pace, too. A little bit more yeah. pace. You know, we had rugby... rugby in the old days. Rugby players the, who, were, yeah. who were the, um, the marshals on the side. So they tackled you. They tackled you hard. And sprint straight across, yeah, jump over far, the fence, fast get as out you of can. There. Yeah. yeah, gear on and go. So. And so 90, and then that led into 93, 94 here because my, my uh, gut feeling, Jonty was already popular, like like because of the, the, the run out of Inzi and um, it was certainly a big enough name on that first tour in Australia. Um, what about batting-wise? You know, how did you... What sort of player were you trying to be? Um, did you adapt throughout your, your career? Um, and in Test match cricket, did you ever feel totally comfortable at that that sort of level? Well, the, I mean, my, the start of my batting career, I, I managed to score 100 against Sri Lanka, in Sri Lanka, to save a test. So it was the last day. Paddy Simcox and I had batted for a lot. He got 30-odd. I got to 100 with Clive Eckstein, who I think faced... Batted for 30 minutes and didn't get off the mark. So it was, Murali was a young guy. I mean, he and I are the same sort of age, so 23, 24. And he wasn't as devastating. He probably didn't have as much of a repertoire. He bowled a few more loose deliveries. But there's, you know, at, but at that stage, people were criticizing people for sweeping in 99, especially in test cricket. You know, you step out and hit the ball down yeah. the ground. But you don't know which way the ball's turning. Quite difficult to step out. So when I went to Sri Lanka again, there was criticism of why is this guy being selected he doesn't play spin very well and I managed to just make it work get 100 against Sri Lanka save the test with, and we actually won sweeping? a lot of sweeping okay. so yep. made morally also because if you just defended him on day 5 standing there we'll say without stepping out by, def- by sweeping him he had to either bowl it fuller or shorter and that was my plan to make him because then if he did bowl it fuller and that was interesting enough batting with Pan Sipcox when we practiced for that tour we were the two Peter Marisburg boys in, in the South African side. And at the club that he represented, it, he'd spoken to the groundsman at the club and said, just get us a, a pitch, but don't prepare it. Because John T needs to bat on this monster Brilliant. that's going to turn. And he said to me, Joe, because you know what it's like, Flem, when, you, when, you, when you're bowling in the nets, you nick somebody off, that's out for sure. You hit him on the pads, that's plum. And the batter's going, no, it's going down, <laughs> didn't carry. So Samo's rule was, Joe, if it goes in the air, you're out. If you hit it in the screws and you think it's going, you're out. Any ball that goes, pops up around the, you're out. So that was a rule. The ball, and he said, the only way you can counter that is that when you're playing spin, you've got to try and get to the, the pitch of the ball on the full toss. Because as a spin bowler, Simo wasn't a big turner, but he would, as a tall man, he would often, his plan was to try and beat you in flight. 
So he said, that's from a perspective of a bowler. If, if, if you're trying to hit me on the half volley and I beat you in flight, I'm going through the gate. But if you're stepping out trying to hit me on the full toss and I beat you in flight, you're hitting a half volley. And most guys, no matter how it's turning, will hit a half volley pretty well. Yeah. So as a batter, it was great preparation. And I think you know, we, we've seen how Steve Smith, I'm not that obsessed, but it, you know, with limited resources that we had and, and limited knowledge of the country we were going to, we prepared like it was Sri Lanka. So for me, it was really satisfying to get 100 on that tour. But then, I mean, I, I then averaged probably 25 for a long time, got dropped from test cricket between 1996 and 1998 and, and had a sort of resurgence as a batter. A work, Bob Wilmer had identified that I was playing too much hockey coming across the line. So, But when you're on a tour, cricket is a game of habit. It's so difficult to change your technique and implement it. So funnily enough, Daryl Cullinan was, was my role model. I watched Daryl bat and I thought this was the most amazing batter. If I can play like Daryl Cullinan, I'll be fine. Yep. So in the practice, he used to wear a round floppy hat. I always wore a cap. So practices, got the floppy hat on. He had long sleeves. <laughs> I'd roll my sleeves down. And he was just elegantly, you know, a bit like Kuwaja yesterday, just beautifully caressing the ball to the boundary. So that was me in the net. But come to the game, and I was all stiff and short arms and two uprights and long strides. And um, when I got dropped from 96 to 98, still traveled with a one-day team. So played a lot of cricket, was 12th man for two years, but continued to work with Graham Ford in, in Natal as, uh, on, on my batting technique. And my defining tour would have been 1998 to England. You know, that, that series where... I got 100 at Lords. I got a 90 odd in the first test and 80 odd in the last test, and uh, we lost the series 3-2. But it was a fantastic series, and I came back having not played Test cricket for two years, way stronger. Not yeah. slight adjustment in the technique, but way stronger between the ears, probably more than anything else. And the pride in your fielding, so you're known the world over oh, for this, no, revered for no, it. How hard did you work on that? There was no pride. It was I loved fielding. Yeah. I, it was never. A, I was just grateful because I, I could not bowl. I mean, seriously, you look at my stats. You you roll them up there. I've bowled two overs in Test cricket ever in those 52 Tests. In fact, I retired Alan Border because if he, 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 I bowled a maiden the last. There was going to be a draw in Durban and his last Test match against South Africa in Durban. Kepler gave me the ball because the umpire said, okay, guys, it's, you know, no results forthcoming. We're going to call the game. So Alan Border didn't want to get out to me. And he just defended and left. And so, you know, I bowled the last six balls that Alan Border ever faced yep. in an international. And another one in one test in Durban, I think, in Cape Town. Oh, uh, sorry, against India in Cape Town. 245 one-day games. I bowled 1.2 overs, maybe. <laughs> it was my 200th game. We were in the West Indies. We already won the series 5-1. And I think most of the, play, the guys we were flying out of that night, out of you know leaving the West Indies after Test Series <clears throat> and also One Day Series. So my 200th game, they needed seven, five to win with you know 13 overs. And Sean Pollock gave me, he was the captain. So he had Joe on your, on your 200th game, have a bowl. And the first over, dead straight, I'm, I was the first guy to kind of bowl that very slippery delivery that looked like it was going to turn but went straight because <laughs> I could not bowl. In fact, I ran to mid-wicket and the umpire said, Jonty, if he hits, he hit the first ball I bowled, West Indian batter, I think it was Carl Hooper, kind of flicked it towards mid-wicket as he did and he missed it. He played for the turn. So from mid-wicket, I was appealing for LBW and the umpire's going, but I can't see anything. You've run straight across. But it looked like it was yeah, anticipation. That's where I was fielding. So yeah, my bowling career sucked. But from a batting perspective, fielding was something that I loved to do. I mean, I never once looked at the newspaper because as a batter, you do. 
And as a bowler, you do, when, you know, when you've done well in a test, you, you open the paper the next day and you bring it in. You, you maybe even go to the toilet and you have a sit and you take your time and, you know, read about your, your exploits. But as a fielder, I wasn't never looking for accolades or just something that I love to do. It wasn't my job, but I was fortunate that I had this extra string to my bow because whenever there was selection, who do we pick, John T or somebody else, it was always, but he adds real value you know, in the field. So I, I, I never felt like, okay, that was a good day in the field. Okay. Every day for me was a great day in the field yeah, that I was yeah. just there playing and, and doing my thing. Can we edit the bowling bit out? <laughs> sort of lost interest. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> yes. Um, what about... Um, no, I never got a hat-trick like you in test cricket. Did you get it? Okay, he'll, he'll, he'll tell me. Okay, so, so yes, carry on. Um... Great bowlers, yes. talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Great bowlers. Talk us through a couple that you had to face and, and why they were so difficult or why you admired them. I think, I think most importantly for me, I mean, in South Africa, we grew up facing pace all the time. I mean, Durban was my home ground. It was known affectionately as the lawn for a reason. It was green. So pace was not something that, that ever had troubled me. I mean, we, I only got at, at one stage... We didn't play much cricket against the West Indies. And, and when, when we did have a test series, a five-test match series, it was the end of the Ambrose-Walsh partnership because they played in the first test in Durban. Oh, wow. And um, I, I think I got 80-odd runs there, so I got hit a few times. But because I'm short of stature, I could get – because they were so awkward, the length that they bowled. You know, but Durban with the extra bounce, I could just get underneath it. So Ambrose and Walsh is a partnership with the toughest guys that I, you know, Waka Yunus and, and, and Wasim Akram, um, for sure, were, you know, a, a great partnership. And then the interesting thing, because you keep talking about partnerships, when, and I think Australia's success against South Africa, it wasn't just Shane Warne, it was the Warne McGrath partnership. And yes, it's McGraw. Oh, yeah, he's just, oh, he's, yeah, yeah. He's slipped in. in. Yeah, he slipped in. So okay. it was interesting because. If you're facing an individual, you can kind of get down the other end. <coughs> I'm getting emotional here. Sorry about that. And, but when you're facing two bowlers coming at you all the time, that partnership is usually what, un, what undoes you. Yeah. Is what leads to your downfall. And what we've seen with South Africa now in this series has just been that, that lack of that bowling partnership. I'm so glad we got to do that. that that's made today's reign worthwhile. Uh, Johnny Rhodes going through uh, some of... His, uh, his memories of cricket and some that we remember so well. And Flem, um, yeah, you lived a, a good few of those as well.